Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. <laughs> The Chumba Life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. You ready? I was born ready. Welcome to the Advisory Opinions Podcast. I'm David French with Sarah Isker, and we're going to talk Trump's search warrant. We're going to talk uh, about the statute. The warrant was was uh, released. Uh, the exhibits to the warrant released. We have statutes that are applicable, laws that were applicable to the warrant. Um, and to help us sort of talk through all of this in as much specificity as we reasonably can, Sarah, we've got a pretty incredible guest. I mean, it's such an incredible guest that it's just a reaffirmation that this is in all ways the flagship podcast of the Dispatch Podcast Network. There is literally no one on the planet better to talk about the Espionage Act than Ed O'Callaghan. Uh, let me just give you the the briefest of bios of Ed. Uh, so Ed is the senior partner of strategic response and investigations in criminal litigation at Wilmer Hale, which if uh, for our legal eagle listeners, they'll know that Wilmer Hale sort of that preeminent place for whenever you did commit crime or are accused of doing crime. Um, he, though, worked on the McCain-Palin race, was uh, at the Southern District of New York U.S. Attorney's Office, where he was the chief of the terrorism and national security folks, and then came to Maine Justice, headed up the National Security Division while I was there, and became the PAYDAG. I know, I know, lots of acronyms. But PAYDAG, we've talked about it before on this podcast, sort of like the COO of the Department of Justice. There are no trains that move, let alone run, without uh, that person knowing what's going on. It's the Principal Associate Deputy Attorney General. So it's P-A-D-A-G. And for some reason, that is pronounced PAYDAG. Um, and so that means that Ed oversaw a lot of the Mueller investigation. I mean, Ed is the center of everything. And there was not an hour that went by when I was at DOJ that I was not texting Ed, calling Ed, going to Ed's office, asking Ed for things. Um, so I owe Ed quite a bit, but instead I'm going to force him to be on this podcast. <laughs> Ed, <laughs> thanks for being here. <laughs> Good morning. Thank you, Sarah. Always a pleasure to speak with you. And good morning, David. Thanks for having me. Uh, I will just clarify one point on the bio. Um, Wilmer Hale being the firm that I'm at now, we represent people who are find themselves in trouble. You, you don't come to Wilmer Hale. Oh, with that, uh, uh, got it. That you come here for, for representation. Yes. Uh, allow us to help you out with that. Yes. Um, so in any event, good clarification. Uh, that's the only clarification <laughs> I, would, I would make on that. Uh, good morning, everyone. Um, David, where do you want to start? You know, that's a really good question. And I thought I might start with um, the statutes involved in the Trump warrant might be a good place because I've seen a lot of confusion about that. Um, 
And if you're looking at the warrant, what you see is that uh, attachment B to the warrant and says all physical document property to be seized, all physical documents and records constituting evidence, contraband, fruits of crime, or other items illegally possessed in violation of 18 USC section 793, 2071, or 1519. And I thought we would sort of go through these one by one. And Ed, if you could explain to us sort of what is Section 793, why, and and with a specific question that I have, why would you talk about 793, which is involving national information pertaining to the national defense, when there is also this 18 U.S.C. Section 1924, unauthorized removal and retention of classified documents or material, why would one be there and not the other? And so just... That's a, that's the launching question, and I know it's a lot of speculation. Yeah, well, look, I mean, part of this is we are, of course, hampered because we don't know exactly um, what the prosecutors who uh, worked with the agents uh, and got the authority uh, to do the search uh, know and, and, and how they're framing uh, their investigation. Um, but, um, you know, 793 um, is uh, somewhat, it, it's called the Espionage Act, which, of course, everyone immediately goes uh, to kind of a spying uh, type of um, uh, considerations, uh, but it is uh, it is typically kind of the go-to statute, um, broadly speaking, when uh, you are uh, investigating the potential unauthorized possession or dissemination of what's referred to as national defense information, uh, the NDI, that's the first acronym I'll use, uh, that may be contained in uh, classified documents. Um, and, um, you know, it doesn't, the, the fact that they've articulated 793 uh, in, the, in the search warrant doesn't preclude them uh, from pursuing investigations um, if they uncover evidence from, from the fruits of the search, uh, which points to violations of other statutes. But um, it does uh, basically, what, that, that statute citation um, is what the prosecutors will use to go to the court to say, look, we are investigating, among other things, a 793 violation. Um, I, would, I would suspect here it's this uh, unauthorized possession or dissemination uh, of national defense information. Um, and, uh, uh, and we believe that, in fact, we're going to articulate to you in an affidavit that an agent can swear, we believe that on these premises, uh, there will be evidence, uh, probable cause to believe there's evidence of a violation of that statute or the other statutes that are cited. But that doesn't mean, you know, at the end of the day, if they are pursuing charges, that they're restricted in pursuing charges on those statutes. And, and what is national defense information? So that can be classified and it can also be unclassified, correct? Typically classified, um, you know, for sure. And national defense information is uh, is information um, that the kind of owner of the um, uh, 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 classified nature of the documents or the information has determined uh, that the unauthorized release of that national defense information would cause some level of harm to the national security of the United States, right? So if you have an intel agency who owns, quote unquote, owns the equity uh, in the information, uh, they will become the classifying authority. 
um, and determine where uh, on the classification scale, confidential, secret, top secret, um, the uh, national defense information that con contained in any data um, uh, should be um, should be put on what level uh, of, of of confidential scheme, um, a classified scheme of, of documents. There's people complaining that the Espionage Act is just way overbroad, sort of a, a RICO-style complaint, that it's a catch-all that any federal prosecutor can basically storm your castle under the Espionage Act and that it violates the First Amendment, it's overbroad, that this thing is a bad law to begin with. I'm wondering if we can actually take just a little bit of a walk down memory lane. Maybe you can hit some of the Espionage Act greatest hits or lowest hits uh, and a little bit about the reality winner case, which you were there for, obviously. Well, I mean, look, the the first of all, and it has to be stated that the Espionage Act is not used uh, uh, as a routine uh, federal criminal charge. Um, it is reserved uh, for, uh, for serious cases. Um, um, and, and the spectrum, the spectrum, I would say, is broad. Like you can go from the Rosenbergs, <laughs> who were were charged uh, under espionage, espionage act violation, uh, all found guilty, and, and ultimately um, uh, sentenced to death. Will you remind people just a little bit about the Rosenbergs? The Rosenbergs is old. It's actually a New York case where um, a couple was uh, found. Uh, spying, and uh, it, I think it was in the 50s, is that right? Uh, I'm going back uh, a, a ways there. Um, uh, and they were prosecuted for providing um, uh, uh, really uh, information to um, to a foreign power that was uh, uh, determined to be uh, of a critical nature. And so, again, it didn't, it didn't get to the treason level, but it was it was espionage, kind of what, what everyone thinks uh, of of the typical um, espionage use of the statute. On the uh, on the other side of it is you know a a list of cases. Um, typically, uh, it, uh, cases are reserved for uh, when um, uh, government agents or former government agents, or government contractors, which reality when it was, uh, which is one of the uh, a case from 2017, 2018. Um, uh, but government contractors or government agents who disclose classified information typically to a foreign power, uh, to some agent uh, of, uh, of, a, of a foreign power. Um, and, you know, there's a, there are a, a line of, of cases um, uh, in which that, is, that has been charged over the years. But typically um, um, it, is, um, uh, it is for one information, like, for example, a government uh, agent is compromised, a U.S. government agent is compromised by an agent of a, of a foreign intelligence service, and they provide classified documents to that. Um, uh, 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 that is one. Sometimes, you know, it gets tricky. I was involved in the Jonathan Pollard uh, investigation, which was uh, a pretty, um, uh, it was high profile. It was very difficult because um, he was convicted of providing information to the Israelis. Um, it was sensitive information, but typically you know, thought to be uh, uh, a um, uh, uh, ally of the United States for sure. Uh, so, but it just shows how important these are. That um, it's not just kind of the Russians or others that we're concerned about. It's it's protection of information uh, uh, of the national defense information. Sorry, will you walk through the reality winner facts a little? Because uh, it it feels like we're very used to yeah. If you steal U.S. secrets and give them to a foreign government, ally or not. Uh, we're coming for you. The Rosenbergs are, I just checked the 
double-checked your dates. They're convicted in 51. They're put to death in 53. They're giving info to the Soviet Union. That's like an obvious, yep, no, no. Um, But that's not what anyone thinks, at least at this point, that Trump has done, that he was somehow stealing national security info and giving it to someone. And this is where the reality winner case becomes more interesting to me, because similarly, she was not accused of working with a foreign power. Right. And I was, I, I was going to get to that point, Sarah, but I understand oh. that we want to talk about this. <laughs> um, so um, there are cases uh, where uh, a government uh, agent or contractor uh, are, are, is prosecuted for providing classified information, not to a foreign power or to an agent of foreign power. Uh, but, uh, for example, the, a media organization. Um, and um, there has been some writings that that has there's been an uptick in that. Um, uh, I'm not so sure I ascribe to that uh, that general position. Uh, but the, 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 the fact is the cases are brought when uh, the folks that are investigating can actually identify a person <laughs> who, who uh, is the one who, uh, 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 took uh, without being authorized the information and then, you know, sent it out. And, and typically, some of the stats I've seen is that there are over a million uh, uh, U.S. Uh, uh, government contractors or, or employees, uh, over a million that have top secret clearance at this point. Um, so oftentimes, finding uh, the, the pool of individuals who may have been the ones that, that leaked information on the authorized fashion is what prevents a, an actual successful investigation. In the reality winner case, that was not the case. Um, uh, she was a, a former Air Force linguist who, uh, when she left service, um, uh, was hired as an NSA contractor uh, and was working at an NSA facility in Georgia. Um, and in 2017, um, uh, it uh, came out in an online publication called The Intercept, uh, what appeared in one of their publication was a, uh, a classified report, it was top secret uh, report, um, that described uh, the U.S. intelligence community's um, uh, analysis of Russian hacking um, and interference in the 2016 election. Um, and while now looking at that, it seems like everyone knows about that, and that's a, a common uh, knowledge uh, fact. Um, when it happened in uh, you know 2017, um, uh, although there was a lot of speculation about it, obviously none of it had been confirmed at that point. And what was important about about that that there were a number of things the national defense information in that uh, report. Uh, but what was important was that, um, as I recall, I think it's been published. Um, the report actually indicated that the GRU. Uh, which is one of the Russian intelligence services, were actually was actually behind the hacking. So it wasn't some, you know, Russian um, uh, non-government hacking organization. It was something that actually was directed uh, by a Russian intel agency. So um, what happens is that that gets published uh, in the Intercept this report, and it's pretty quickly. I feel like like maybe the same day or the day after reality winner. Um, is arrested uh, on a 793 charge, unauthorized possession and dissemination of classified information. Um, and uh, if you look at the affidavit and the and the information that came out, she ultimately pleads guilty uh, to the to the charge in 2018, I believe. But if you look at the affidavit, it was 
uh, one of the more direct <laughs> identifications uh, of uh, a uh, someone who held uh, clearances, uh, you know, uh, unauthorized, you know, receipt of a of a classified document, uh, printed it out on a printer, which they were able to quickly identify where it was. She sent the document uh, to the intercept by in, in anonymously in the mail. The intercept just like. I think the intercept tried to confirm with the NSA that it was a, 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 an authentic document. Um, and in that confirmation, it was kind of clear. It was, they narrowed it down to one of six people, and then they found out the timing and the, off the printer and everything. So it was an easy uh, identification, and the, and the evidence was overwhelming uh, that she had done this. Um, and so, again, at the time, so one thing is she holds this clearance, right? She's an NSA contractor working in one of their surveillance facilities in Georgia. And um, um, uh, she goes into a, as I understand it, into a, a database that she wasn't authorized to, to go into, downloads this report, prints it out, puts it in the mail, sends it to the intercept. Um, and then there's a whole host of, you know, social media uh, 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 rants and such things that, that, that she had had. But anyway, she's prosecuted under under the Espionage Act for this unauthorized possession and, and dissemination of, of classified material. The, the, I believe it was at a top secret level. So the national defense information contained in there is determined by the holder of the, uh, of the equity and the classified information here in the NSA that it would cause grave harm to the national security of the United if it was disseminated without the proper authority. So uh, one lesson here is definitely do not send classified information to media outlets. Another lesson is, and, if, and definitely do not do it to The Intercept because <laughs> they will burn you. But A lot of media organizations learned quite a bit from that and how to mm -hmm. do better uh, source protection when your source doesn't protect themselves. Right. For better or worse. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Full work limited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. So I, I've got a question, and this is something, maybe this is, I think that um, this is something that's really important for people to understand. And then a lot of people who've had security clearances sort of, it, it just becomes a sort of a, a part of, a, a part of who you are that you begin to understand the differences in dealing with not cla uh, unclassified and classified information. But a lot of people, I think, just don't realize what kind of precautions are taken to deal with classified information. And so you've got a, if you've got a top secret security clearance, even a secret security clearance, and you're exposed to classified information during your job. And when I had a security clearance and when I was in Iraq, one of the things we had was thumb drives. And you had a classified thumb drive and you would have an unclassified thumb drive. And one thing you absolutely could not do is take the classified thumb drive home with you, even if you promised to put it in like a safe or a locked drawer. 
what do you, what kind of precautions if you are an employee of the Department of Defense, Department of Justice, um, Department of State, wherever it is, and you're a civilian employee, um, what kind of precautions are taken to safeguard classified information? How how are you supposed to treat classified information? Sure. So there are there are uh, varying levels of the, the matter in which uh, classified information is treated. Um, uh, the most sensitive top secret SCI, uh, which is sensitive compartmentalized information um, that's, that's even above, uh, you know, kind of top secret because there are specific compartments that people are read into and only uh, those, those people, which is definitely less than a million people, <laughs> I said before, have, have SCI clearance and it's for particular programs. The basis of, of all clearances is a need to know, right? First of all, you have to have the background checks and everything then you have to have a need to know in your job function for the U.S. government um, the particular piece of information that's contained in classified information. So TSSEI material, which is the highest, that's that's maintained in, in, in what's, sorry for the acronym, it's called the SCAF, it's a sensitive compartmentalized information facility. Um, and, um, you know, the offices that are routinely um, handle classified information at that level have these facilities, which literally have to be certified by, you know, intelligence community folks, because the vast majority of TSSEI information comes out of the intelligence community, and it's shared on a very strict basis, on a need-to-know basis, uh, with uh, with various functions uh, of of the government, typically executive branch, but also Congress, and also sometimes judiciary, um, and so. Um, it's 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 handled very carefully by folks who who have the training to handle it. And frankly, when you get a clearance at that level, it, it's 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 something that's in your mind all the time, um, and and you just want to make sure um, you know that you don't quote unquote screw the pooch and 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 leave something where it's not supposed to be. And so um, so that that's kind of where it is. And then and and then there are as I said, lower gradations of that. It might not be a skip like. You know, there are some of the agencies that you talked about. There are whole whole floors or or like whole buildings that are that that are literally certified as as skips. Um, so uh, so that the the documents can be maintained. And within the skip, of course, they're they're maintained in safes. Um, uh, and these are uh, talking like hard copy documents. Um, the other situation is, you know, obviously because everything data is all electronic. Uh, these days, um, you know, uh, there are also different levels of certification of uh, computer um, uh, uh, and electronic data transmissions. Um, and so, um, you know, there it, it, it is um, uh, also typically maintained in, in a SCIF. You'll have a, uh, you know, a, a uh, classified computer system, depending on what level. Um, and then, um, you know, uh, you're not allowed to remove, print out, <laughs> take documents that that are that should be in the skiff outside of that. Um, secret uh, and sometimes top secret uh, can be maintained at a lower level, not in the skiff, but uh, in again a kind of a certified um, a classified information container, typically some some type of safe um, uh, that has limited access and um, uh, only people who have the clearance at the level, you know. Of, of which the, the materials contained can, can gain access to it. All right, I've got a 
couple procedural questions for you. You represent clients now. The Department of Justice sends your client a subpoena for document X, and your client says, no, thank you. I do not want to turn that over. What are your options? What are the department's options short of a search warrant? First of all, I, you know, even prior to subpoena, sorry, but even prior to subpoena, uh, you know, you would, if, if you would try to gain the information that you're seeking by way short of compulsion, right? A subpoena is issued uh, when efforts to uh, get documents, get testimony cannot be uh, uh, arranged by way of a negotiation uh, or, or what have you. Um, um, and so you basically are saying when you go get a grand jury subpoena um, that you are going to, you as the prosecutor, along with your agent, but you as the prosecutor are going to use the power to compel um, an individual to produce information or, or testimony to the grand jury uh, because you believe that that would be helpful to the grand jury's uh, investigation. Not something you have to go to the grand jury to, to get. Um, you know, the, the AUSAs, the Assistant United States Attorneys, and the various U.S. Attorney's Office, and the attorneys at the Department of Justice act on behalf of the grand jury. They can issue the, the subpoenas uh, on behalf of the grand jury. So if you issue the subpoena and um, the person who receives the subpoena uh, does not comply, um, you have you have a, a few options. One again, negotiate. Uh, but really, it's uh, it, it, the, the main thing is to go try to enforce the subpoena, uh, which uh, means um, uh, giving them the recipient a date in court um, where uh, they are ordered to appear um, in court, uh, so that you know the government uh, attorney can articulate why um, the information that they have they believe it by the recipient of the subpoena is important to the grand jury uh, investigation and the defense lawyer can make their arguments. Typically, frankly, in my experience, it doesn't come to that. Um, um, and if it does come to that, just the fact that you're going to haul them before the judge um, is the step that then, you know, shockingly boxes start showing up, right? Um, but um, the other thing that, you know, has been done, I know, and, and I have experience with is issuance of what's called a forthwith subpoena. Like typically, subpoenas uh, give the recipient a, um, a, a, a re what's called a, a return date, right? A date that's on a subpoena by which either documents need to produce, be produced or the individual has to testify. A forthwith subpoena, uh, which needs to be approved by the U.S. Attorney or a head of, of uh, uh, the division, typically the criminal division of the U.S. In, in the Department of Justice, forthwith says, give me the stuff now. Forthwith. <laughs> this is not a... This is not a, you know, I'm gonna, I'm gonna give you time to figure. This is you have to give it to me now, and uh, those are issued very, you know, in very rare circumstances. Um, but uh, you know, I have, I, I, I did it <laughs> uh, in, in, in a case in the Southern District where you know I, I knew that there were, you know, class, there was classified documents in, in, in the possession of an individual. They were not. Um, at the time, they were they were somewhat dated. I'm not going to get into it further. They were somewhat dated documents, but they still were classified. I knew the individual had them, um, and uh, she was just unwilling uh, uh, to part with them uh, because um, I, they were like her dad's documents or something. It was there was some 
you know, family ancestry uh, with the documents. Um, but nonetheless, there were still classified documents that were not being maintained properly. So I issued a forthwith subpoena. Um, and the response was, she really doesn't want to do I'm like, okay, we're going before the district court judge this afternoon uh, because, you know, I, they're there. You know, you know, and, and this is what we need to do. Um, and so we did. And the district, we went, we argued. Uh, they heard the judge heard both sides, and and she said, "Okay, Mr. So and So, those documents need to be delivered to Mr. O'Callaghan now." Um, uh, and that's what happened. Um, so we got the documents by issuance of a fourth with subpoena. But right, um, it, it, that didn't it didn't one objective of doing that would be okay. He's going to haul me into court. I don't want to go to court. I'll give him the documents. Right? They didn't do that. We had to go to court. I got the documents by going before a judge. But you have to go before a judge, right? That's the thing, because uh, the grand jury doesn't technically the grand jury doesn't report to the U.S. Attorney's Office or the Department of Justice. They actually, report to uh, uh, the, the court in the in the jurisdiction in which they sit. Uh, so the court ordered uh, them to do that, and so to get enforcement of, of a subpoena, even a fourth with one, you'd have to be as the government attorney prepared to go to court to argue for that. So you go to court, and if they then ignore it. The court would hold them in contempt. So, and that you could go to jail for being held in contempt of court, of course. I guess I'm wondering. Most extreme. Yeah. Right. I'm just running this out to like, if you just keep saying no, <laughs> how then do you hypothesize getting from a subpoena to a search warrant? Why would you skip the forthwith? Why would you skip going the contempt of court route? So, and then obviously the last thing I was going to say is you can do a search warrant, right? And, and, um, go before a judge and say, these are all the reasons why we need to go there. The difference, frankly, between the subpoena and the search warrant is that the subpoena, they're both still in the investigative stage, right? Uh, but a subpoena, um, you, don't really, you don't need to articulate probable cause to believe uh, that there is evidence of a crime. Uh, uh, it, it is um, uh, uh, evidence that would be helpful for the ongoing grand jury investigation, right, um, and uh, either forthwith or otherwise. Now, you know, some would say that, well, if you're issuing a grand jury subpoena, even a forthwith one, for the sole purpose of, retain, of retrieving documents, you're not really using it, right, to investigate a crime. I, I mean, it's it's one step in an investigation, and then you can decide how far you want to go with the evidence. You, you, you're you're saying I, I have a reasonable belief that there's evidence there, uh, but um, but I don't know how it matches up with other evidence. I have all that. It's a fair use of it. On a search warrant, you're saying I have probable cause to believe that there's evidence of a crime um, in the premises. So I think it actually elevates it um, uh, a notch uh, to say kind of a further along judge in my representations to you uh, that because frankly, probable cause, while it's the, kind of the lowest level criminal burden, it's still all that really needs to be shown to, to get an indictment um, uh, before the grand jury. So um, uh, by saying I, I need to get the search warrant, um, I'm, I'm investigating further the, 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 that a crime has been committed on a probable cause basis, and I need that. What has happened between uh, why you would go search warrant and not forth with subpoena? Um, um, I'm, I'm, again, not entirely sure, but one thing that comes to mind is um, you don't want it to play out in court. Um, you don't want uh, the 
um, uh, disagreement <laughs> on it uh, to go to court either because um, you would just anticipate that that would generate kind of uh, more quote unquote notoriety uh, than than what you're hoping for. Um, you, um, you, you frankly don't know how the other side will respond uh, to a court date. There's also this problem with the lawyer for Trump signing a letter saying there was no more classified material at Mar-a-Lago to the Department of Justice. And I wonder if because the subpoena, they kind of get to pick what they're turning over, that at some point you're like, I don't, I don't mean pick like they get to decline, but rather if you don't know every piece of paper that's already there, and they're saying there's no pieces of paper there, and you know that there are, at some point you're like, I, the subpoena is pointless. They're going to turn over five pieces of paper at most when I know there's 50, and then we're just going to keep doing this every couple months together. I give you a subpoena, you find another piece of paper, and we're running up against the possibility that this guy's about to announce for president. Yeah, that's fair. I don't, I don't, I don't know. I mean, if, if there is, I would, this is what I say, right? It has come out over the last week that there were discussions um, you know, with uh, with NSD and and representations, I don't know anything about it. Representatives of Trump, um, um, and and that um, uh, you know something something broke down <laughs> in, <laughs> in, in, in 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 those discussions. Um, uh, where uh, I mean, to your point, Sarah, you know, the the DOJ just got to a point where uh, they didn't think it would be uh, productive or fruitful, um, and they still obviously had. Uh, sufficient information to convince a judge that there was probable cause to believe that there was still evidence of crimes in that premises. Um, so, um, you know, again, we haven't seen the affidavit, so we don't know uh, what the articulation of that uh, of that probable cause was. Uh, but, you know, one could imagine, Sarah, that there's actually some type of discussion like that uh, in in the affidavit, uh, because you know, a search warrant you do have to show. Um, that uh, you have, um, you know, pursued all of the avenues to gain uh, the information. You have recent determination that kind of the intrusive um, uh, resort to to the search warrant is merited. Yeah, it feels to me like there is a substantial difference between give us your documents, answer no, and give us your documents. Here you go, and you lie. You 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 say. Here, here's, here's all the documents, and then you later learn, no, in fact, that's not all the documents. Um, that, so one, one of the uh, questions that I had was when you're talking about, um, and, and this is, this is a, a process point that um, Sarah and I have talked about, but uh, when, you're, when you're thinking about getting uh, a, uh, a search warrant here in this circumstance, what actually is the process? You're an FBI agent and you're investigating the misplacing or, or uh, retention of classified information that a person as prominent as uh, Donald Trump shouldn't have. What's the step? And you think, I need to get this. How many hoops do you jump through before you're getting to the point of a search warrant executed against a former president of the United States? Yeah, uh, uh, certainly many hoops. Um, <laughs> many um, and, hoops. And, and I mean, again, hoop based after on hoop. The, the public available open source information, it, it sounds as if there was like a meeting in June. 
where this topic was discussed, uh, the documents and, and, and the search warrant isn't executed until uh, August. So I would say, you know, two months worth of hoops at least. <laughs> uh, but, but I mean, to walk through the walk through the process, it is, um, you know, this, this, um, again, based on what, what I've seen is, is something that is, um, being, um, uh, driven out of the national security division, obviously, which makes sense. The national security division, which in within DOJ, um, ultimately has charging authority for 793 violations for sure. Uh, working with the U S attorney, uh, the U S attorney's office, um, that's appropriate, but, um, uh, this, this needs to be run through the National Security Division. Um, and uh, so there would be um, some, uh, some uh, um, you know, discussion among the leadership with the National Security Division and, and whatever U.S. Attorney's Office is investigating this, likely the D.C. U.S. Attorney's Office, to say, look, we've tried every, every way we can. Um, and, you know, we're, we're just not, we, we still have, Probably, possibly, there are more documents in 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 this premise. Um, so this would this would go to the the assistant attorney general uh, for the national security division, um, who would have to approve it, um, and then uh, to the, the 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 deputy attorney general's office, the office where um, I was quote unquote paid hack, not quote unquote quote unquote what? <laughs> Wait, if this is news to me. If you were a paid hack, we have a problem exactly. here. Uh, I was. I was only paid out when I said it. No, <laughs> um, uh, it goes to the deputy attorney general's office because um, the, they have, um, uh, again, kind of supervisory authority over criminal criminal related decisions within the department. Um, and then, you know, something of, of this magnitude uh, would uh, would would go to the attorney general, um, and as as AG Garland said, um, he he specifically approved it. Now, uh, on the FBI side. Um, you know, while um, it, it wouldn't kind of require the, the, the concurrence of, um, of the FBI director, because the FBI director does report to the attorney general, um, uh, I suspect that there was um, to the deputy attorney general. That concurrence to the deputy attorney general uh, <laughs> and then the attorney general. I, I would um, I would expect that there was concurrence um, uh, that this was the necessary investigative step to take. So. FBI and DOJ aligned uh, to go to the, the the court in Florida uh, to present the affidavit and the affidavit. So it's they work with the attorneys at DOJ, uh, but the affiant, uh, the person who actually swears to uh, the the facts that are articulated in the affidavit to show probable cause, that will be an FBI agent um, who has been working uh, on the case, and ultimately they're the ones. Um, uh, that that sign off on the on the facts as articulated in, in the affidavit in support of the search warrant. I think it's weird that all the hate has been directed toward the FBI. These catchphrases of defund the FBI and stuff. When in fact, this was driven by prosecutors at DOJ. The FBI agents are signing these affidavits. They're part of the investigation. But this idea that somehow this is FBI driven is very bizarre to me. That somehow if we just defund the FBI. Then it'll be fine. <laughs> then there's no more search warrants. That's not even who went to the judge. But okay, Ed. Well, you. So I mean, you would go to the judge with with your agent typically in case they had some questions. Yes, but the but agents aren't going alone. <laughs> it, it, it's uh, um, it's uh, yeah, I agree. It's DOJ and FBI. 
for sure. Last question. If a lawyer signed a letter to you that said that there were no more classified documents on the premises, can you play out two scenarios for me? A, you have some evidence that the lawyer knows that what they just signed was not truthful. What happens to that lawyer? And B, that the uh, lawyer was believing their client and perhaps didn't do a lot of due diligence, but does not personally know what they are signing to be false. What happens to the lawyer in that scenario? Uh, yeah, that, so uh, that's a difficult. Uh, uh, the second one's easier, right? The, the, the second one is, um, you know, there is a, a ethical duties on lawyers uh, to make sure before they make representations on behalf of their clients that they have done due diligence so that, you know, the representations that they make um, uh, can can be uh, supported uh, um, with a, a good faith, but kind of, you know, a little bit more than good faith that, that they've done a, a diligent inquiry on that. And so if you don't do that and, and, and you have proof that the lawyer um, uh, didn't, didn't do that and just took his client's word, uh, for it, um, you know, there, there are definitely uh, ethical um, uh, ethical violations that can be brought against a lawyer um, in in their bar where they're registered. Um, um, obviously, it, it it means that that lawyer can't represent anything <laughs> uh, to this uh, to this particular DOJ team ever again uh, because that's that's just you know. Um, professional um, the courtesy and that professionalism. Um, and if they're not representing properly, then um, uh, then you just won't you won't deal with them anymore. Um, the first scenario was when the lawyer knew um, that there were more documents, um, you know, that obviously is more troubling and and harder to uh, prove you know, and harder to prove. But uh, clearly, obviously, all the, the ethical violations and, and what you can do with the bar, that's that's one thing. But then the question becomes, you know, whether, you know, there, there's some type of potential conspiracy um, uh, that, that the lawyer can be considered to have participated in. Um, if you're saying um, either conspiracy or, uh, you know, an accomplice uh, type of uh, scenario, if you're saying that the lawyer knew that there were documents there, knew that the government uh, was saying, you need to give us those documents, and you can show that there was an agreement between the lawyer and his client uh, that the lawyer would make these false representations to the government. You know, there's an there's an argument there that the, that that lawyer could become a target of the investigation as well. Uh, very difficult to prove. Um, you know, the lawyer would clearly say, "I was just going based on what my client told me." Uh, but you know, there's you're in your hypothetical. There was some evidence that you had the lawyer knowledge about that, which makes it a little bit more difficult. Now, real last question. Okay, this one more. We've taken up several the, billable increments, David. I know, I know, I know. This this last one should be pretty short. Okay, so what about a possibility that I have seen expressed, which is stop talking about some sort of ultimate criminal prosecution of Trump. Really what's happening is they knew he had documents. They just wanted to go get their documents. And that's that. In other words... The real issue here is rather than trying to explore whether or not we're going to actually prosecute a former president for all of this, we just know he had documents. We want to go get them and make sure he doesn't have any more. End of end of matter. So let me. I'm just going to approach this as a very very line prosecutor uh, yes, uh, right. uh, viewpoint uh, and not anything on 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 the politics of it because there are certainly policy issues about 
why you would never want to bring a, a, a case of, of, of that nature, right? right. And I, I just just to leave that to the side. Um, um, uh, from from uh, uh, from the the answer is it's it's um, I would think and I would suspect that the answer is that it's 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 too it's too soon to tell uh, that because whatever documents that they did get um, they just got them last week um, and um, you know it doesn't seem like it's a massive cache of documents uh, but um, uh, you know you do you do need to basically go through it and and see as both uh, an agent and a prosecutor uh, you know where things lie you know. What what is uh, the evidence there that we can put together uh, to see whether anyone, not 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 any particular individual, but anyone involved in this, uh, may may be subject to um, possible criminal violation charges, right? And and again, here what you're doing as a as a line prosecutor is applying what's called the principles of federal prosecution, uh, which are in the justice manual, uh, which which guides all prosecution. Considerations, which is uh, after I get all of my evidence before I, I go uh, to seek a charge, and there's all of the evidence in total, um, convince me and convince all these other supervisors who will be looking at it, uh, convince us that there is evidence now beyond a reasonable doubt um, that I have been able to assemble in the course of my investigation, which may include the take from this search warrant. Uh, do I have evidence beyond a reasonable doubt that I'm going to convince 12 jurors uh, that a crime was committed by this individual and that this evidence was part of that? That's a, that's a, that's a process that takes a while, um, and, and there are a lot of layers of approval to something like that. But, you know, if, if, if I'm looking at it from a line prosecutor's perspective, you know, that's what I would expect the analysis that's transpiring right now is, is, is uh, that's what I expect the, is transpiring now. One last note on the warrant seeking. Would you look up who the duty judge was before you went to get a warrant? And by duty judge, let me just define that. So uh, magistrate judges, you know, have to sign warrants all the time and at all times of day and night, potentially. And so the judge that you get, you don't get to pick that judge. There is a duty judge who's on at that time. But of course, you can pick what time you go get the warrant. Not always. I mean, that's the answer, right? So, so... Uh, it depends on the, frankly, the hand you're dealt and, and the timing and circumstances of it. If it's, uh, just practically speaking, it's not, there's not judge shopping. Um, but, um, you know, there, uh, there are, there are circumstances where a prosecutor can say, you know, um, and it's not really that far ahead. It might be a, a day or two, you know, a judge is on duty. Um, and, and, and there might be, opportunity to, to go before a judge who either, you know, you know, they think you think they have the right experience um, because they've handled a number of cases um, uh, uh, or frankly, you just kind of know that they have a, uh, you know, a law enforcement background and, and will get it uh, kind of uh, more so than, than maybe other judges will. But mostly it's based on the judge's experience if you're going to if you're going to do that. I mean, I don't know how much urgency there was in, in the one that you're talking about here. Typically, if there's like, uh, I have probable cause to believe this classified information in this premises and I can't get it otherwise, it's pretty urgent. Uh, so you're just going to go into the judge uh, when you get the approval um, uh, to do it uh, from, from the supervisors and go to the judge to make sure you can get that as quickly as possible. All right. That is an awesome place to end with such insider knowledge from former PayDag, Ed O'Callaghan, 
now senior partner at Wilmer Hale. If you are doing crimes or thinking of doing crimes or have been accused of doing <laughs> crimes, I highly recommend Ed <laughs> as your counsel. <laughs> okay. If you uh, have sent secret documents to, to The Intercept, <laughs> call Ed. Yes. And also, y'all can't see the beard, but as you may remember, when the end of the Mueller investigation was announced, Ed was standing there on the podium, and late-night hosts uh, across the spectrum referred to him in various versions of Beardy McBeard face. It's a fantastic beard. It's worth a Google image search. Uh, Ed O'Callaghan beard. It's, It's like the best beard I've ever seen. Wow. Thank you. Thank you. I'll have to step up my game even more now. David, your beard is nice, too, because I can see David's beard. It's very refined. No, I mean, look, we don't have to highlight that Sarah sees mine every week and (laughs) went out of her way to say best she's ever seen. So we we don't have to highlight. I mean, you don't know Ed's beard routine the way that I do. I've asked about this. I know about the oils and the manicuring that goes into maintaining a beard that looks like that, David. It is a great beard. It's a fantastic beard. Sarah, Sarah, unauthorized disclosure of classified information. Right there. <laughs> uh, it also is worth noting that Katie Barlow, who's been a guest on this podcast, is your wife. So perhaps privilege was broken and your wife told me some of those details. Mm. Ed. Okay. Well, that's okay. Then. <laughs> well, thanks. thanks so much, Ed. We really uh, appreciate it. Thanks very much for having me. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car, before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. So, Sarah, that was awesome. Thanks for bringing Ed. Um, I'm telling you, we have some of the best guests on this podcast, knowledgeable, knowledgeable people. Um, What are some of your exit thoughts from that interview? I mean, it's just worth noting that at the Department of Justice, the person who has overseen this entire process with the retrieval of these classified documents is the person who currently holds Ed's job. So there's almost literally no one who knows more except for that one person currently in the job um, about what goes into that job, what that person does, then Ed. um, And just to reiterate, like Ed was my day-to-day personal savior and uh, friend. So it was really fun to have him on the podcast finally. Uh, Ed has babysat Nate. He makes the best Aperol spritz. So that's just fun. On the substance... I think a lot of that was just worthwhile to walk through how some of the more, they're not even conspiracy theories, actually. I don't want to call them that. It's very smart people saying like, aha, what about this idea of how this could have happened? Like, oh, it doesn't quite work that way. Actually, it's this large bureaucratic process and here's what needs to happen. Um, Again, I come back to the three questions that we don't know the answers to. One, what actual documents were seized and how important were they? We're frankly not going to know the answer to that, but I'm going to keep raising it because it is relevant. It's not legally relevant, but it is relevant to the prudential question. Two, who had access to those documents when they were at Mar-a-Lago? This is the biggest question to me. It's not even a close call. It's why they see surveillance footage, no doubt. 
the idea behind this being this this whole argument about whether Trump declassified documents, why he wanted the documents, all of that, to me, might be entirely beside the point. I can easily envision a scenario where former Trump aides, when he was president, and now current Trump, whatever you want to call them, people who are close to him, wanted those documents for their own reasons, have been accessing those documents. And so it's not really about a former president. It's about you know, Cash Patel has been um, a name mentioned. He at one point was working at the White House, then uh, the Department of Defense. And he's someone very close to Donald Trump right now. If Cash Patel is going in and out of that room on the surveillance footage, looking at those documents, that's going to be a very different thing to DOJ than the former president. Um, And number three, and something we got into with Ed, obviously, is what happened in between the June meeting, the subpoena, the lawyer signs a letter that we don't have any more documents and the search warrant being executed. I think that the Occam's razor explanation is that they felt like they had, that the lawyer didn't know, maybe Trump didn't even know what they had. So the subpoena was just pointless at some point. They wouldn't know where to go get these documents to begin with, right? Remember they searched Melania's closet at some point. So um, it's not like it's all in one place or it's stapled piece of, packet, you know, that they're just going to pick up, um, or that for some reason they had information that some of what they wanted was about to be destroyed or something else, or that they believed because of the media reports that because Donald Trump was about to announce for president, they would not be able to take any public investigative steps once he was a candidate for office. That's not a legal thing. That's a prudential DOJ policy about not taking public investigative steps. in the run-up to a campaign. Normally, that means after Labor Day for a congressional campaign or something like that. But when you're dealing with a presidential campaign, DOJ has kind of learned that it's just very messy. So I think we will find over time that it was one of those three things. A, they didn't know where it was or what it was. They couldn't really, the subpoena process just wasn't going to work if your client doesn't know what you're really asking for. Uh, Two, they thought something was going to be destroyed, or three, that they felt like they were running up against an unknown deadline when Donald Trump could announce for president. Yeah, one thing that's interesting to me, because if we go all the way back to our first discussion of this last week, early last week in the emergency pod, you mentioned, why not a subpoena? Why not a subpoena? And then after you mentioned the subpoena, we found out there was a subpoena. And I think the really interesting question to me is, uh, if they lost confidence that a subpoena would produce truthful disclosure, that changes the equation. That's what I was trying to get at with some of the questions with Ed. Now, let me, let me, Sarah, I mean, to be clear, gotta, at the point they issue the subpoena and then the lawyer says, we don't have anything more. At some point you, you have exhausted the subpoena route, right? Like right, they're telling right. you they don't have anything more. Either they truly believe that, in which case the subpoena route's stupid, or they don't truly believe it, in which case the subpoena route's pointless too. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. I, to me, that that really was an interesting, cha- an interesting additional factor in the calculus that said this was not the FBI running in on any pretext into Mar-a-Lago. They had been through a process that included a subpoena, and the subpoena response was not complete. And at some point, you're thinking, well, what is what can they do at this point? Um, all right. So I have a question for you, Sarah, in response to some comments. I wrote about, uh, for my Sunday newsletter, I did something a little different, didn't deal with sort of religious, cultural, moral type issues. I dealt with this. 
And there were two responses because I, I was talking about comparing the Hillary Clinton situation to the Donald Trump situation. And I was saying whatever standard that was applied to Hillary should be applied to Trump. And I had two major um, responses to this. One from Democrats saying, how dare you compare Hillary Clinton to Donald Trump? And then the other one from Republicans saying, how dare you compare Hillary Clinton to Donald Trump? <laughs> With very different emphases on the how dare you. Can I tell you that when I tweeted out uh, your news article with my own, like these are, they're not perfectly the same thing. I'm not saying that they are, but Democrats should have taken the Hillary um, uh, mishandling of classified information more seriously. And Republicans shouldn't pretend that this is so, such a difference in kind. And all the differences they're trying to point out aren't nearly as black and white as they say, there were so many comments where I couldn't tell which side the person was on as they were telling me how wrong I was. They're like, how can you think these are the same? Obviously, a former president is different. Wait, is a former president different because you're saying it's worse or better? I can't tell. (laughs) I can't tell. I can't tell. So here is a question that I want to get your your thought on. And because one of the, the point that I made was, look, I'm not saying they're a one to one comparison, but I'm saying that what happened is as a result of Hillary's conduct, James Comey announced a standard. He announced factors to consider when determining whether to recommend prosecution. And I said, if those were the factors to consider for Hillary, they should be the factors to consider for Trump. Now, those factors may be more, you know, the, the facts may be more egregious with Trump or maybe not. We, we don't, there's a lot we don't know. And a lot of people said to me this, Sarah, and I want your assessment. Well, if your position is that the, uh, that the FBI should have recommended uh, prosecution for Hillary, then you have to recommend, you have to believe that the FBI should recommend prosecution for Trump. because. Two wrongs don't make a right. You don't take the wrong standard for Hillary and apply it again for Donald Trump. And there's, you know, a lot to be said for that point of view. Um, But I'm very curious as to what you think about that. But I, I still, if you're going to articulate a legal standard that applied to the Democratic nominee, <laughs> and then you're going to say, whoops, our bad. We're not going to apply that anymore. The Republican nominee gets an indictment. I don't know. I see problems, but I'm very curious about your your position. So a few things. One, I don't know that I buy into the, we screwed up that time, so we have to continue the screw up for the other side at least one time before we can fix the problem. (laughs) And let me give you an example, and it's the Bill Clinton Me Too example. This idea that like, well, we gave Bill Clinton a pass on a bunch of Me Too stuff and rape allegations that were credible. Right. So we're going to have to give at least one Republican a pass on- right. Uh, Me Too allegations and credible rape allegations or something. Uh, No, I think we should just say we were wrong about Bill Clinton and fix the problem. Right. And this comes up in the DOJ context plenty. You know, Jim Comey gave a press conference about Hillary Clinton that sort of morally indicted her and then legally uh, acquitted her. Should we do that for Republicans too? No, that was a really mm-hmm. bad thing to do. And right. surely we've learned from that. So let's never do it again. It's not that each team gets one of these, whether you think it was a good right. thing or a bad thing that Comey did it for Hillary Clinton or Donald Trump or whatever else. Like, nope, we're just not going to do it again because it turned out to be really bad. So if we all agree that not indicting Hillary Clinton 
was a bad idea, and I'm not saying we do all agree on that, I don't know that it necessarily follows that we have to follow the same thing for Donald Trump from that prudential standpoint. I will say that there is a legal argument that Jim Comey articulated a new legal standard under Mm -hmm. 793 that is Mm -hmm. legally relevant. Mm -hmm. Um, So there's that. Um, I also think it's worth discussing why, if you feel strongly that one or the other of these is better or worse, that perhaps you have trouble seeing why someone might have the exact opposite opinion of you. So I wanted to run through some of the ways in which you could argue the Hillary episode was worse and some ways in which you could argue the Trump episode was worse. Super helpful. So, Mm -hmm. and these are just my own opinions of how you could argue that. One, because Hillary Clinton was conducting these classified conversations on her server, a private server, it was actually far more hackable by foreign governments. So the risk to our national security was simply higher than putting documents behind even a crappy bike lock in Mar-a-Lago. Um, once that was attached to the internet, I mean, as we saw, the Russians hacked the DNC server. She opened up all of those conversations to be read by really any foreign government ally or not. And I think you could argue that that was, uh, had the potential for more damage Two, that the reason that she opened it up, you know, on her private server was doing all of this was so, um, venal. I don't know what the right word is. Like she was doing it for her own personal political benefits so that Republicans couldn't FOIA her emails and make hay out of innocuous stuff. And so why not just move them all into a private server or, she just thought it would be more convenient. Either way, not a great reason to uh, open up those conversations to potential foreign governments to read. Um, and then, of course, there's the wiping the server aspect yeah. to it, which people have made a big deal out of, where it looks like there is some willful desire to get rid of evidence about what she actually did. Now, People can argue that's not why she wiped the server. That was sort of standard after she left state. Of course, you'd wipe the server just in case. You don't know what's on there. Just get rid of it for the very reason that private servers um, aren't always that secure. And she was going to have less security uh, on that server moving forward. But another version is she wiped the server because they were looking into it. And again, DOJ, for what it's worth, did recover, if not all of those emails, the vast majority of them is my understanding. So it was all kind of pointless anyway. So that's why the Hillary thing might be worse, at least some of the reasons. On the Donald Trump version, I think saying that the former president did it makes it worse and better. On the one hand, you can say he was president. (laughs) We elected him. He gets to, you know, he has a lot more freedom in what he can do than Hillary Clinton as secretary of state. Okay. On the other hand, he's the former president. He should know even better. He should be so protective of our national security secrets, and we should hold him to a higher standard than the secretary of state. That one cuts both ways for me. Uh, the sheer mass of what appears to have been at Mar-a-Lago and that it's not all in one place, that it's kind of all over in different rooms, et cetera, not great. Uh, it appears that, again, these are specific documents that are marked um, with high classification levels. Nothing in Hillary's conversations was actually marked top secret. It was that the content of the conversations was a top secret conversation, which is different. As in, Hillary Clinton should have known she was discussing something she knew to be top secret information. But literally on the page in Donald Trump's basement, it right. says, you know, top, top, secret. top secret. 
Um, mm-hmm. Also, and of course, this is the, the big, the money shot, if you will, David. DOJ asked for the documents back. Yeah. And he said, some version of no. <laughs> mm-hmm. Either I don't have yeah. them, no, go pound sand, whatever. Um, so depending on which side you're on, I just thought it was worth explaining how the other side may view this, which kind of washes out for me, David, frankly. Yep, they're pretty different situations in some respects. Both of them, though, had classification and declassification authority to some extent. Both of them knew better. Um, and I mean, these are these are the people we trust. Yeah. It's so frustrating. Yeah. So number one, on the two wrongs make a right, don't make a right. I'm with you 100%. So my view was not, as I have articulated 10,000 times, well, the Democrats gave Bill Clinton a pass for sexual assault and sexual harassment. Therefore, we get a freebie in Donald Trump. No, my argument has been forever. Wait a minute. Um, we were out- outraged at Bill Clinton. We should be outraged at Donald Trump. That's a, that's a political decision, uh, political slash moral decision about what do you do when somebody manifests behavior on quote unquote, unquote your side that you have condemned vociferously on the other side. The distinction here is, as you raised, there were legal factors that were raised here and that Comey purported to go through the, all of the espion, DOJ Espionage Act prosecutions and said, historically, this is when we prosecute. And so since it doesn't rise to the level of when we have historically prosecuted, then we're not going to recommend prosecution. To me, while I disagreed with the legal analysis, he was articulating a, what he described as an existing standard at the DOJ. So it was literally not exactly two wrongs make a right in the sense that uh, in the w- way we talk about it with comparing, say, Bill Clinton's uh, sexual harassment and Donald Trump's sexual harassment. It was, we have a DOJ standard that we're going to apply to Hillary. And that standard, even if it doesn't exactly match the statute, is still the way we have determined we're going to prosecute crimes. Well, if that's the standard, move it over and apply it to Donald Trump. And if that DOJ practice is contrary to the will of Congress, you know, Congress should act on that. It's sort of is my fundamental argument. Now, when it comes to Hillary, it is simply remarkable to me, even now, years later, well, maybe it's not remarkable, the extent to which a lot of Democrats don't want to look squarely and clearly at what she did. This sort of but her emails um, kind of, you know, throwaway line. It's just insulting our intelligence at this point. There wasn't any justification for what she did. And, and it is not the case. Everyone said, well, she completely cooperated. Well, if I'm handing those over servers that have already been wiped, yay, <laughs> you know, like, or phones have been destroyed by hammers, um, it's not necessarily the case that you can sit there and see, there's a lot of trust that has to be applied and the DOJ had to do a lot of backtracking to find all of the people who Hillary emailed to get their copy of the email. So this is not exactly, oh, our bad, here you go, here's everything. It was much more like, oh, well, here's everything except that which we deleted, which trust us what we deleted wasn't official business. 
Um, <laughs> w- would you would you buy that from Trump? Would you? No, doubt it. Would you buy it from anybody that you didn't like politically? You would not. So, I mean, think of it like that. This is the thing that gets me is there's just still this inability to sort of stare into the reality of that scandal. Um, and and to this day, people have big feels about it. David, there was another thing that happened over the weekend where Donald Trump said that a lot of the documents they collected could be subject to attorney-client privilege and executive privilege. And I thought I would just mention some of how this will work at DOJ. Um, so first of all, let's divide up attorney-client privilege. I think most people know, right? It's conversations with your attorney um, and we've talked a lot about what is privileged and what isn't privileged in other conversations, but not everything you talk to your attorney about is privileged necessarily. But let's assume for the sake of argument, there are real privileged conversations there. Executive privilege is the concept that we want the president to be able to get advice and deliberative conversations from people without everything having to be turned over publicly or else people aren't going to offer their candid advice. The privilege belongs to the executive, i.e. the president. It does not belong to the former president, as we've discussed, although, again, the purpose of executive privilege would certainly apply retroactively to conversations that the president had. Um, But the most important thing here is that (laughs) there is nothing that could be privileged under executive privilege that would not, therefore, belong under the Presidential Records Act. Because if it's work, and it's privileged because it was deliberative work conversation, then it definitely is a Presidential Records Act, which means that it definitely shouldn't be in Mar-a-Lago. It's uh, owned by us, the people, which is held in trust by the National Archives. So he basically just said that he knew he had documents that shouldn't have been in Mar-a-Lago. Of course, as one person put it, I thought uh, quite succinctly, uh, executive privilege by definition means that it's owned by the executive. And you, sir are not the executive anymore. Yeah. And then on the on the attorney-client privilege documents, David, this is really normal. You know, anytime the Department of Justice executes a search warrant on BP or any major corporation, they're gonna sweep up tons of documents that could fall under executive privilege. So what do they do? They have something called a filter team or a taint team, which some people thought was a funny name. So I'll just definitely keep using (laughs) it is objectively a funny name. I'll keep using taint team. Uh, and basically, yes. before the investigative team, those FBI agents and prosecutors who went and got the search warrant, for instance, actually get to review any of what's swept up in the search, a totally separate group of FBI agents uh, or potentially DOJ attorneys now are going to look through those documents and filter out anything that's attorney-client privileged. And then once all of those documents have been removed, Then they hand the remaining set of documents over to the investigative team, who then will not be tainted by the privileged documents. Yeah, thanks. That's all extremely helpful. And one other thing to clarify, and I don't think we've got time to talk about the Roy Moore defamation verdict. We'll just save that. Um, One other thing to to clarify is uh, a number of people said, okay, David, let's well, let's just grant for a moment that we should apply the same standard that the DOJ applied to Hillary, but didn't Trump change the law? Didn't Trump come in and make mishandling classified information a felony? So he himself said, hey, we didn't handle the Clinton thing right. We need to really ratchet up our scrutiny of classified information. 
or mishandling of classified information and ramp up prosecution. Yeah, that's so that is 18 U.S. Code 1924. This is something that I talked about with Ed, unauthorized removal and retention of classified documents or material. And in 2018, um, the the length of imprisonment was raised to five years. So yes, Trump did uh, beef up the law. He signed into law a bill that beefed up the penalties for mishandling classified information. Now, what's interesting, though, is that the actual warrant doesn't mention 18 U.S.C. 1924. It mentions 18 U.S.C. 793, along with an obstruction statute and a record retention statute. But Section 793, which was the key statute applicable to Hillary, which was the standard that Comey articulated, was the same statute that was uh, on the search warrant for Trump, and that sucker hadn't been amended since 1996. So it's the exact same statute with the exact same wording. And so the 1924 analysis doesn't even come in yet. We haven't seen that. And the other thing is, I mentioned in the piece that um, it could very well be the case that when it comes to actually possessing the classified information, that what you have is something that is really in a lot of ways quite similar to the Hillary situation. And if the DOJ legal standard applied in the Hillary situation, it should apply in the Trump situation under the same statute that has not been changed. But there's some obstruction elements that were added in the search warrant. So it could be one of those situations where it's not the crime, it's the cover-up. But again, all of that is speculation. Um, but my basic thesis was pretty simple. If there was an existing legal standard articulated under 793 that mitigated against prosecuting Hillary Clinton, and there has been no clear policy change by the DOJ, then that standard needs to be applied to Trump. And I'm not saying that he's exonerated under it. I'm just saying apply it. That's that's my my basic point. I like that point. <laughs> Thank you, Sarah. Um, so anything else? I think we've covered a lot today. You know, we do nerd August because it's usually a slow legal month. Most people are on vacation, even lawyers. The Supreme Court obviously isn't in session, but leave it to Donald Trump, man. I just, <clears throat> I remember the one time I tried to take a mini vacation at the Department of Justice. It was in August. I tried to go floating down the river near Harper's Ferry. Punchline. Which I, that's a beautiful area, oh, by the way. Oh, I'm sure it would be if I had actually seen it. <laughs> <laughs> Instead, I am in an inner tube. <laughs> Graphic content ahead. I'm in an inner tube with my work cell phone and my personal cell phone, both in little Ziploc bags shoved <laughs> into the top of my bathing suit in the places you can imagine to try to keep them dry. <laughs> and then finding every rock that we float by, I would get out, take out the cell phones and have calls with uh, <laughs> the deputy attorney general or the attorney general. Uh, and and that I I then like paddled the rest of the way down the river and had to drive back very quickly. Um, so that that was like five hours of my Sunday that was actually very stressful and miserable. And I realized that just staying home would have been way better. And so I never went on vacation again. Yeah, no, I. <laughs> there's a lot of people who their story is Trump came down the escalator and then I never went on vacation That's right. again. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Attempted vacation fail. Yeah, exactly. Oh my gosh. All right. Well, listeners, thank you for hanging with us for a slightly longer than normal advisory opinions, Worth but it. lots 
worth it. Lots of good content, incredible guest. So we appreciate it. And if you appreciate us, please go rate us, please subscribe, and please check out thedispatch.com. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.